Intersection is brought to you by Social Health Institute, exploring new and innovative ways for hospitals and healthcare organizations to develop and enhance their social media and digital marketing strategies. Learn more at socialhealthinstitute.com. My first reaction is, I'm going to fix that. I'm going to change that. And that's always been, that's always been me. Welcome to Intersection. I'm Bobby Rutu, storyteller. I am Rosalind Goodwin. I am Vice President for Engagement for the South Carolina Hospital Association. And the South Carolina Hospital Association represents all the hospitals in the state of South Carolina. I have been with the Hospital Association now 14 years. Before that, I worked at Palmetto Health, one of our larger healthcare systems here in the state in business development and strategic planning. And then before that, I worked under in the office of Governor Jim Hodges in health and human services policy. I am a native of South Carolina, rural South Carolina. I'm a native of Mount Carmel, South Carolina. And part of my destiny is to put it on the map. So I have to give you some details about Mount Carmel, South Carolina. In 2008, I met Roz when South Carolina Hospital Association hired me to craft a series of stories to demystify the stigmas of Medicaid in South Carolina. Our journey together continued as I worked alongside Roz, capturing telling stories of the uninsured across South Carolina. Her passion and commitment to the underserved population comes from her childhood in the rural town of Mount Carmel. I want to learn about Mount Carmel a little bit. (laughs) Mount Carmel uh, has a population of 231, well, maybe 230 since my cousin just got married last week. Uh, all of us are related or kin, like we say back in Mount Carmel. And until recently, we had a single wide trailer with wheels on it painted red, white and blue for our post office. So if that gives you any indication of uh, how special small town rural South Carolina is. Definitely Mount Carmel is special to me. And that rural upbringing, um, of course, with everyone being so close and caring for one another, my parents still being in Mount Carmel and still actively serving their community in uh, public service and community service. They're still very active, 77 and 75, and are busy every day trying to make life better for everyone around them. That's instilled in me uh, and helps drive who I am and what I do today. How did you find yourself in public policy? Background is you you went to Lander University with my wife. Yes. So, in Lander University, did you say, I am going to fight for the underserved and the over- underprivileged in healthcare in South Carolina? Or how did you find yourself in that public policy space? I think as going back to my upbringing, I was also raised in the African Methodist Episcopal Church, the AME Church, and got exposed very early, not necessarily to politics, but I guess governance and kind of government um, because as an early at an early age, we were in the young people's division and you had to run for office. And there were oratorical contests that I would enter and win. And there were, you know, different levels of the statewide organization of our YPD, our young people's division, as we would call it. So I, I'd be around other people from other regions of the state and we run for office and you know compete and then talk about our bylaws and our the AME Church has been, always has been since its inception, very engaged in public policy. And that was instilled in me very, very early that 
the role of the church is to be that light and beacon of the community and speak up for those who are underserved. Uh, that was the origin of, of it, the, the beginning of the AME church um, out of um, it was kind of birthed out of discrimination toward black people um, worshiping. So that was instilled very early. Um, you know, my parents, I have a father now who's on county council, but he didn't enter into public policies for our service in that capacity until about 14 years ago. So I didn't I didn't grow up around politics. It was just kind of ingrained in me to be an advocate. So I, I didn't know necessarily that I wanted to be in politics, but I did know very early that I wanted to be an advocate. I can go back to stories in high school where somebody was being picked on and I stood up for them or um, even controversial issues like when um, the, the case with Susan Smith and her um sons and what, you know, horrible thing that happened there, even uh, at the height of the Confederate flag issue before it came down off the dome here in South Carolina, we had a debate about it in high school. (laughs) And I was always at the center of it. And it went on into college uh, where we had blackface incidents and, you know, really trying to work on racial reconciliation and unity, even in college. So from grade school through college, I've always been an advocate or just someone to speak for, speak up for what's right. And people have, have tended to, to follow. Um, so I've always kind of emerged as a leader. So I, I think part of that was just part of my purpose in, in being born in the environment that I was born in. I didn't realize until I probably as an adolescent, my great grandmother raised my mother um, because my mom, my mom's mom had her when she was 12. So I had very, um, I've always been very passionate about teenage pregnancy for that reason. But my great grandmother helped raise us. And, you know, when I was 12 years old, she was almost 90 and had experienced home health care, nursing home care, just every facet of the healthcare environment or system. So I was very close to her and um, saw that experience firsthand and got, I guess, the, the urge to really try to help in healthcare. I found a passion in healthcare at 12 years old and actually got my first apprenticeship at the McCormick Nursing Home when I was 15. So I knew I wanted to be in healthcare. And then once I found out in undergraduate school that I could blend healthcare with my passion to be an advocate, I thought it was a no brainer. I said, I've got to be in health policy. I've got to be in health politics. And I've been in this vein, gosh, since 12 years old. Why healthcare? I mean, you could have taken that passion anywhere else, but you chose to follow healthcare. And I guess one of the reasons why I ask this question specifically is because you are basically the central person for Medicaid and Medicaid expansion in South Carolina. And you have worked hard for that. And I see your passion. How did you get connected to that? to that topic? And how did you get connected to that issue? I know it's one that's been a part of South Carolina Hospital Association's initiatives, but how did you get started with really pushing for that initiative? Well, I mean, I think the why healthcare also goes back to my love for my great grandmother and some of the, uh, I guess, injustices we experienced with her care. So when I see injustice, my first reaction is, I'm going to fix that. I'm going to change that. And that's always been that's always been me from elementary school to high school to college. So that's kind of where it was birthed to get into healthcare. I kind of always knew as I was in college and, and studying and researching what all was there. I was even a, a Truman 
scholar finalist. And my essay was about healthcare insurance for all <laughs> developing a system. This is way before the Affordable Care Act. This is before all those things. And I spent a lot of time researching how I can get access to healthcare to people. And I guess when you're raised in a, a pretty poor part of rural South Carolina, I mean, I would visit family members who did not have indoor plumbing. And this is in the 90s. So when you're that, and we were fortunate to not live in that those type of conditions, but those conditions were just a mile down the road. And my parents raised us to care. So when you see those types of inequities in one state, you know, even in one county, one, one small town, it, it really drove that passion to, to change things. So even when I got my first apprenticeship in the nursing home, I was thinking then I was like, well, I'm going to run nursing homes. I'm going to change nursing homes. And then when I got in a clinical setting, I realized that, okay, I don't do well with death. So I probably can't be in a nursing home every day. I was just emotionally distraught when Mr. Bill died, you know, and that happened a lot. So I knew I couldn't be clinical and I worked at a surgical practice. I kind of explored different things. You know, I worked in state public health agencies. I worked for surgeons. I I did a, a stint with uh, information and research for a state government agency, worked at a nursing home. And so I was able to get in a different, a lot of different settings to great, to gain invaluable experience, but it also helped kind of direct me to, okay, I'm not probably going to be a clinical person. When I worked in a hospital and did strategic planning, I said, well, I'm probably not going to be a hospital administrator. That's not my vein. I really want to do something more um, statewide, more global. I really want to impact and change policy. So I need to be in policy. And the role just kind of evolved that way. I was at Palmetto Health actually, and uh, doing, um, I was doing an internship and I was just intent on meeting the people who were doing jobs that I really admired. At the time, Governor Jim Hodges had a female, um, African-American female woman who was advising him on health and human services policy. And I spent probably six months emailing and calling almost every day, just trying to shadow her for 30 minutes. I basically, when I finally got to her, I said, I just want to follow you around. I'll fix your coffee. You won't even know I'm there. I just want to see what you do. I'm just amazed by it. That 30 minute shadowing turned into an all day visit and meeting with her. And at the end of the day, she offered me a job. So I ended up working in health policy for um, Governor Jim Hodges and loved every second of it. And I knew then that, okay, this is what I want to do. I really want to be at the table and help shape some of these decisions that impact our state. Well, and I want to touch on something real quick that you just said that I think is interesting. How important for you was it to see at your age, fundamentally, another black woman serving in public policy in the state of South Carolina and wanting to go see what that looked like? How important was that to you to find your niche and find your place? Is that a fair question? I mean, it's definitely a fair question. Had she been a white male, I would have done the same thing. Uh, but the fact that she was a black female really helped me see this is doable. You can do this. And, and it wasn't just that she was a black female. Virgie Chambers is the most brilliant health policy person you'll probably ever meet before in your life. She understands Medicaid more than anybody I've ever met. <laughs> and I still call her to this day. She is amazing and brilliant. Um, now she's working in the Department of Education, doing some similar work tying in education and healthcare for um, Superintendent Mar Molly Spearman. 
Uh, but that experience was a it was a bonus to see someone who looked like me in that type of role. Like I said, it had it been a white male, I would have done the same calling. Uh, but it certainly gave me another image that um, you can never deny how impactful that was. Can you take me to the moment when you realized you were going to start working on Medicaid expansion and Medicaid in the state of South Carolina for the Hospital Association? Can you think back to your beginning journey with that, those huge policy pieces? You know, it really wasn't something that we were sitting down in a management team meeting and I got assigned. It just kind of evolved as the Affordable Care Act. We recognized that it was becoming law, of course, for years. There's been a lot of discussion about some type of reform. And when it looked like it would pass, I do what I tell a lot of people I mentor now. I don't know if I did it consciously, but it's it's just something I did. I wanted to know everything I could about the Affordable Care Act. I mean, it's, this was ex- exciting to me, of course, there. And I, I before I get up before anyone and talk about the Affordable Care Act, I'm not saying it's a perfect law. Uh, but the fact that we had passed something uh, that several presidents had attempted to do for decades was exciting to me. I mean, and this was one of the I, I would say the the biggest change in our healthcare delivery system since the passage of Medicare and Medicaid in the 60s. So I really just kind of emerged myself in understanding the law, not necessarily to build a niche like I tell my mentor mentees to do now. but. I guess looking back, that's kind of what I was doing, but I wasn't doing that trying to be the Medicaid expansion lady or the ACA lady. I wasn't trying to be that, wasn't trying to be that person. I was just trying to understand what was going on. But as I was learning more about it, understanding, reading, going to seminars, just really emerging myself in it, our hospital association was called upon to explain it to boards and community organizations and universities and our hospital board of trustees and a lot of groups started calling on us to explain what the ACA was, what it meant, what it wasn't. And I ended up being sent out by our association to do that because I had spent so much time learning the Affordable Care Act. So as I was speaking about the Affordable Care Act, and now I've stopped counting, but we were counting at one point. You know, I've addressed over 300, probably close to 400 groups now about the Affordable Care Act since its passage, just because so many people were asking us, asking us to do that. So it was groups. It was uh, radio interviews. It was television interviews. It was all those things because people were trying to understand what was going on with our healthcare system now. And after the Supreme Court, of course, we were following all of the, the challenges to the law. And then the Supreme Court's ruling came that made Medicaid expansion optional. We knew that as we were had been even before the Affordable Care Act passed, our association had partnered with our medical association, our um, Blue Cross Blue Shield. And, and our business chamber, we had already come up with a plan related to coverage. And that work just kind of paused because the Affordable Care Act passed and a lot of what we were proposing was in the Affordable Care Act. So we had already made our stake and our claim that the Association of South Hospitals of South Carolina were for coverage. So when the, the, the Supreme Court decision about Medicaid expansion being optional to states was handed down, and within minutes, our governor at the time said, no way, we will not be expanding Medicaid under my watch. We had no choice but to say, wait, you know, wait a minute, let's let's have a, an honest discussion about this statewide. And then it became a big, uh, I guess, part of our advocacy program to have discussions about expansion. 
and how it would benefit South Carolina, what would be the pros, what would be the cons, what would it cost? And it was really, it ended up being our role, fell our lot to be that spokesperson related to this aspect of the Affordable Care Act. So as I was already out speaking about the ACA, I was already speaking about the ACA. So I was, it just kind of fell into my lap to already be talking more about Medicaid expansion. Um, we got a little bit more aggressive about going out and speaking. Um, there were town hall meetings and a number of other things that were going on at the time. Our Medicaid director at the time was also very aggressive going out to different places. So we'd often meet up par- across parts of the state with differing points of view about Medicaid expansion. Uh, so it just, you know, it was a hot topic and people wanted to talk about it. So I was on TV and I was on radio. So I ended up being kind of coined as the Medicaid expansion lady in South Carolina. That's kind of how it all happened. Now a quick break to give a quick shout out to the network that sports intersection, Touchpoint Media, a collection of podcasts dedicated to discussions on all things healthcare, including digital marketing and online patient engagement strategies, CIO and technology strategies, the challenges of the online physician, the power of the e-patient, and most importantly, the power of storytelling. To learn more, go to touchpoint.health. That is touchpoint.health. Let's rejoin the show. Let's understand the state of South Carolina from a healthcare perspective at that time. Specifically, when the Affordable Care Act came out, obviously it was a hot topic for all the hospitals. But also Medicaid expansion was a big topic because of the underserved in South Carolina, the people that did not have access. Give us a state and under, so we can understand what that would mean to South Carolina and who were the people in need. Just kind of explain that at that point in time, what was going on. So we were recognizing, which we still have to communicate now, that the Affordable Care Act had passed and we were going to be able to you know, have hundreds of thousands, you know, up to 300, 400,000 people eligible now for subsidies or tax credits to reduce the cost of their health care insurance if they purchased it through the Affordable Care Act marketplaces. But that decision to make Medicaid expansion optional and then our state resisting the option to expand the Medicaid program would leave about 200,000 South Carolinians in what we call a coverage gap. And those were the people who were living beneath the poverty level but were too rich to qualify for our existing Medicaid program. Roz's commitment and compassion to every patient having access to quality health care provides a unique intersection where her faith, passion, and her amazing ability to speak up tells her own story and the stories of the working poor. A lot of people assume that our Medicaid program, our existing Medicaid program, covers everyone who's poor. And that, that couldn't be further from the truth. I mean, if you're a single mom with one child and you make $11,000 a year, your child qualifies for Medicaid, but you're too rich to qualify for Medicaid. And if you're making that type of money, you're probably working at a convenience store and they don't offer health care insurance. And you make too, so you're too rich to qualify for Medicaid, but you're too poor to get a subsidy because the subsidies only begin when you're making you know, well over $12,000 a year. So they're caught in this gap. So they're working, but they can't afford healthcare because they can't get a subsidy and then they can't qualify for Medicaid. 
Now, the dilemma she's in is if she stops working, she can qualify for Medicaid. (laughs) Now, what sense does that make? But our policy is set up such that we de-incentivize people to work. So somebody really wants to work. They want to get out of poverty. They want the confidence and everything that comes and the self-assurance that comes with working. We have set it up so that we are punishing them because they are working. And if they're not making high enough wages, they can't afford health care. Um, so we, we got about 200,000 people that are just kind of caught in that gap. And gosh, I mentioned that, you know, I meet people all the time at our open enrollment events. So they hear about these events and they hear about the Affordable Care Act and they hear about people coming and getting health care insurance for $10 a month and doing it in less than 10 minutes. So people line up and we try to warn them before they get there, but it's really difficult to explain. So you have people who between working two jobs in one day, come and get in line to see whether they qualify for health care insurance. And I will never forget this woman who had on a uniform for one job and she was rushing because she had to get to the next job. And when she found out she did not qualify for any assistance and she works two jobs, she was devastated. And I mean, I was too. I mean, it never, I never get comfortable with that type of situation. And we try to direct them to uh, clinics in the area, but it's not healthcare insurance. You know, we can direct you to some services, but that you don't have the assurance or the financial security of having healthcare insurance that in case something happens to you, in case you get some type of diagnosis, that you won't end up in medical bankruptcy because you don't have health insurance. So that is what we were, and we continue to uh, ex- express that to, to people uh, that we've got this gap of people in South Carolina who are working, um, that we're really encouraging not to work. And we're, 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 we're giving two very different messages that we want people to work. We want to bring jobs. We want people to be self-sustained and, and all those type things, self-sufficient. But we have a healthcare system and a policy set up that de-incentivizing them to work at this point. And it's about 200,000 people in South Carolina that it impacts. I think about these stories and I think about the first time I went with your team to hospital day at the state house and standing in between the two sessions between the Senate and the house. And the nasty name was Obamacare Mm. and talk about what it was like for you to take those policy positions into those chambers and outside those chambers on those on that inside that the walls of the state house to advocate what was that like in the early days oh gosh it was very contentious i mean we have friends who of course you know, right now disagree with us on not necessarily that we should expand i'm gonna tell you the typical conversation i had with people who voted against this they pull us to the side and say look we know this is the right thing to do I just can't do this and be reelected. I mean, it's 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 a hot potato. I mean, it is in some cases. I don't know if the environment is as bad as it was a couple of years ago. But it's like political suicide to say that you're voting for Obamacare. Of course, I'm referencing the Affordable Care Act, but (laughs) it's been branded as Obamacare uh, politically. So anything that you do as a politician particularly to a base that is anti-Obama, anti-Obamacare, um, they, they weren't willing to take that chance. And, you know, quite honestly, we've got great 
political friends who are great to hospitals that we didn't want to put in a position to take that chance. We didn't want them to, to commit political suicide. So, you know, four years ago, that's what it was. It was it was political suicide. Obama was still in office. It was Obamacare. It was socialized medicine. It was government trying to take over my medicine. It, it, it the, the environment was just so, so toxic and so bad related to the law. There's a lot of misinformation about the law. I mean, I sat on panels with professionals who were just making up stuff because they didn't understand the law. <laughs> I had to call a couple of them out a couple of times. It was it was it was bad. It was really ridiculous. Um, so we didn't get very far, but it didn't stop us from our education efforts to explain what Medicaid expansion was, what it was not. Um, so on the surface, it looks like, you know, wow, y'all really fighting and you got nothing done. But we were able to educate people across the state and, you know, mainly our policymakers on the benefits to a point that I think they understand and they get it now. It is just, um, as one of our senators said, and I hold on to, it may take South Carolina a while, but we're going to do the right thing. It may take us longer than others, but we will eventually do the right thing. And I, and I hold on to that, um, that I think as the environment is, is a little better, now that President Obama is not in office and we've seen a number of red states that are similar to South Carolina take advantage of this billion plus dollar uh, of income for for healthcare coming into the state to increase jobs in healthcare and even jobs that are indirect to healthcare because of the ripple effect of that much money coming into the state every year, about $2 billion now, that we've seen other states take advantage of the funds and then create their own conservative type model that is not traditional Medicaid expansion. They've even taken the dollars and bought private healthcare insurance plan for people who are eligible for this expansion. So we've seen these models and I think we'll we'll warm up to it when the time is right. Um, but I, we don't regret the conversations, the it being contentious and us doing what we had to do to educate our state and our policymakers on something that greatly impacts 200,000 people in South Carolina and that we're paying for anyway. You know, our taxes are still paying for Medicaid expansion whether we're taking it or not. And those are dollars that are going to other states. Let me ask you, we started partnering together and started telling the stories of the uninsured, started shifting, y'all shifted strategy a little bit and said, look, what if we start appealing to the emotion? Talk about some of the early stories and why we started telling those stories. Why was that so important to talk to the underinsured and the uninsured and go to these big uh, clinics and show pictures of the thousands of people coming to receive care. Why was that so important to what y'all are doing at this time period? I'm, I'm so glad you brought that up because this work really began way before the Affordable Care Act passed. And we had an option to expand the Medicaid program. It began with um, Access Health and those days of care that we provide at stadiums where people could come and they would line up wee hours in the morning just to get screenings or eye care. We had people even come from other states. I think that was so important because we recognized really early, and it's still part of the problem now, the stereotypes associated with people who are uninsured or on Medicaid are so often very false. And those stereotypes that people have come out in the way they vote. It comes out with policymakers and the arguments they make against um, 
access to health care insurance or access to health care for those who are underserved. There's just this assumption that people who would benefit from these services are all people who are not working. They are lazy. They are ethnic minorities. All of those things impact the way people think about these services and how they vote. And it's sad to say, but it's so very, very true. And we recognize I was riding in a car uh, with a coworker. This had to be probably six years ago. And we were talking about something else. And I stopped him. I said, we have passed by three billboards for Medicaid companies. Everybody on the billboard is black. This is the problem. People think that everybody on Medicaid is black. So it doesn't it doesn't touch their emotion. Now, I know I've talked about race quite a bit on this podcast. Like, who is Bobby invited on this podcast? (laughs) But we are in South Carolina. This is real. (laughs) It is real. It's an important topic because it's a topic that is discussed every day. And we spent a lot of time together talking about breaking that stigma to showcase different families from all walks of financial and geographic situations across the state. Talk about the intentionality to admit that there is a population, that a a good portion of the population may be African-American, Black, whatever, however we want to term it. But there is also a large population that are white. Yes. That have lost jobs, good paying jobs that need just to help. Talk about the faces of what we found and who we've talked to from your perspective. So the majority of people we're trying to help, whether they're uninsured or would benefit from expansion or Medicaid, are not minorities. They're, they're white. Majority of people on Medicaid are working. They're in working families. It's not something that people get on and stay for the rest of their lives. The average length of time that people are on the Medicaid program in South Carolina, it's about two years. You know, So it is something that people are on temporarily until the situations get better. And that is totally opposite from what people think. So as soon as you say the word Medicaid, and that's why we've not been able to use the word Medicaid expansion. We've tried to come up with all different types of terms to talk about Medicaid expansion because people immediately have this image when you say Medicaid. This image goes back to um, the 90s and the 80s or a welfare queen or all these things that were invoked on the federal level. People still have those images today. Someone gaming the system, taking advantage of the system, not working all those type things. And it's totally opposite. So we had to try to change the image and the, get rid of the myth related to Medicaid and the uninsured. So that work began even before the Affordable Care Act passed because we recognize that before we make any progress related to coverage, we've got to help people see the face of who actually is uninsured, who is actually on Medicaid. So we talked to people who were college students or college-educated people with children who were born with you know, health conditions that they could not afford, even with private health insurance from a job, to take care of all of the bills that were necessary. And so we talked to those um, and, and you helped us put their story on video. And we went around the state to really show people these are the faces of Medicaid. Get that other stuff out of your head is incorrect. And, you know, people's stereotypes about who they think will be benefiting from something really impacts how they feel, how they vote how other people pressure them to vote uh, for it. Um, So the stereotypes and stigma, of course, is something we will continue to to deal with. But even now, there are people who would benefit from the Affordable Care Act, could get a subsidy, but the stigma of it being Obamacare, they said, well, never mind, I don't want it. 
I don't want that Obamacare. But yeah, let me hear about that Affordable Care Act. <laughs> it's the same thing. <laughs> but they don't want anything associated with Obama. Now, what what's the root of that? You can't tell me it's not something related to race. <laughs> if you hate Obamacare, but you love the Affordable Care Act, come on. Something going on with race there. I need you to dig a little deeper. <laughs> I'll never forget the time that we spent together on all these different big events. And I would walk in to these big mission events. We called them mission. Um, and all this was funded, you know, tremendously by the Duke Endowment, Blue Cross Blue Shield, and so many partners of these big events where people would come and there'd be lines of them, lines of people across the state. And I would look at them and Roz, these people look like me and I would look and it would just break my heart that we would have these events downtown on the fairgrounds of Columbia. And it wasn't two miles up the road that the state house stood. And it would be amazing if those legislators would just walk down or drive down two minutes. They could meet every one of the people. And I was just amazed the disconnect between those in need and what was two miles up the road based based on the numbers, just the sheer mass of it. Did that magnitude of it, of that disparity get to you at any point in time of like, how oh, we are climbing a big hill here? Oh, man, it got to me quite a bit, you know, but it's. The promises I made to Senator Pickney, you know, keeping a picture of my children on my desk, those things keep me motivated to keep me moving. Going back home and, you know, my, my cousin next door struggling with trying to get access to health care and keeping a job. And, you know, so those things keep me grounded because my because of my roots. Um, but there's certainly days and I'm like, gosh, there's there's a whole lot more I could be doing with my gifts and talents. Like LeBron said, I could be taking my talent somewhere else. <laughs> But I can't. That is, is part of my purpose. And like I promised Senator Pinkney, we're going to fight till we win. So, I mean, it is definitely. And we've encouraged, we've invited legislators. But, you know, sometimes they'll come and get exposed to it. Others just kind of turn their head. I mean, um, it, it is not until in which we always encourage constituents reach out. I need you to share your personal story. Make a visit to the state house. I vote for you. I'm in your district explain to them what is going on. And that is what really moves them. And like I said, on the surface, it looks like we haven't made a lot of progress, but these type stories, mission, the the pictures, the constituents reaching directly out to their legislators are making an impact. It is pricking their hearts. They're certainly thinking about it. Um, And while it's taken us a while to do it, I do believe that at the end of the day, like our good senator said, um, we will do the right thing. Well, progress is being made because Medicaid expansion was on the primary ballot for the Democratic side in South Carolina. That's a big move. It is. It is. Talk about that. And what does that mean just by getting something on the ballot for people to voice their opinion in a collective space? I think it means, particularly with the results, that it is still a a big issue uh, for the Democratic Party. I know that the newly elected um, Democratic nominee for governor has also made it very clear, even with one of his first ads, uh, that access to health care will be one of his top priorities. And so he didn't shy away from that. So I, I think 
the conversation certainly is still there um, and will continue to be there even as we move forward with debates, um, particularly in the next couple of weeks, once the Republican nominee for governor is determined after the runoff. But it will continue to be a conversation. And that's that's a good thing. It's not something that's just going away. Um, there, of course, are red states that are moving forward. Even southern states, Virginia, will be moving forward with expansion in the coming months. Uh, Utah has it on their ballot. Um, so there's movement that's going on across the country. And I, I believe South Carolina will, will be in one of those waves coming forward to the southeastern states. That's really kind of the bulk. If you want to look at a map, that's where most of the states who've not yet expanded are in. But we're part of a shrinking minority. You know, 18 states at this point will probably be close to 15, 17 or 16 states very soon. Um, so everyone else has taken advantage of these these dollars to expand access to health care in their states. Uh, and eventually South Carolina will join them. There's movement and changes and narratives that are happening here in South Carolina. And you have seen it and witnessed it. And something you shared with me many a few years ago, and I, I can't remember exactly when, but it has always stuck with me, is fighting for these issues like expanding access to care. And But each day you would have to walk up to the state house past the Confederate flag as a, as a black woman that is lobbying for the underserved and the underinsured. And you share that that was a struggle to walk past that sometimes. And, you know, even you would, I've heard people share um, how Senator uh, Clemente Pinckney, that was a struggle for many people to do that. And so when you saw it come down, that has to give you no, to know that there is progress being made and the narratives are changing. Uh, What are your thoughts there with that? And how have you seen the changes, very simple changes that are coming along the path here for your work? You know, many people thought that that would it would never come down. And the fact that it the movement to to bring it down, I guess the bipartisan movement to bring it down happened so quickly. You know, I really it certainly gave us hope and encouragement related to any other issue that people think can never happen. If that happened, we will do what's right related to access to, to health care. I, I, I just truly believe that it was a, it was an amazing day. It was particularly for me amazing to see some of the legislators who have been fighting for so many years, people like Representative Gilda Cobb Hunter to be in tears. I mean, almost weeping that day um, was particularly moving for me. So there's nothing that's impossible. Once we get the will and um, particularly the bipartisan support, and that's what we always strive to do. I believe that South Carolina can come up with a plan that is specific to them um, that is conservative with our, our core values and our beliefs and that we can get bipartisan support for it, whatever it is. We've got the flexibility to do that under the Trump administration. Um, so once we have the will to work together to do it, similar to what, what we did with the Confederate flag coming down, it can happen and it can happen quickly. And I, that's encouraging. Roz, thank you. Uh, It is the most awesome honor, number one, to work with you on a daily basis, number two, to interview you, and number three, to witness your journey. And uh, I'm very thankful that uh, we have crossed paths. 
Likewise, Bobby, you're an amazing storyteller, and I'm, I'm thankful you have this platform to share your gifts with the world. Thank you for joining us. We hope you enjoyed the conversation and exploration. Most importantly, the many intersections inside the world of storytelling. Intersection is powered by Touchpoint Media Network, podcast dedicated to discussions on all things healthcare. Go to touchpoint.health for many other podcasts exploring digital marketing and online patient engagement strategies, CIO and technology strategies, the challenges of the online physician, the power of the e-patient, and most importantly, the power of storytelling. To learn more, go to touchpoint.health. That is touchpoint.health. Have a good day.